Here's what I'm going to ask is, is if everybody would open to Acts chapter 7. I know what you're saying. You're saying, wait a second, I thought we were in Ephesians. Why in the world are we starting in Acts? Well, one important thing for us to understand is that the book of, or the book of Ephesians begins by stating Paul. And sometimes we take for granted that we know who Paul is or that we understand, uh, you know, most of what we understand about him is just New Testament, brother in Christ, uh, incredible writer used by God, Paul. Sometimes we don't understand pre-Jesus Paul. Or in fact, let me ask you it this way. When is the last time that you made a first-time acquaintance with somebody over the occasion of a murder? Anybody? Seems like a silly question, doesn't it? A couple times a week for Jay. (laughs) Okay? For some of us that might have happened, but I mean while it's actually going on. That sounds pretty serious, doesn't it? What's very interesting about the book of Acts is that Acts is actually part two of the writings of the Dr. Luke. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke first, and then he writes Acts as a sequel. And as he's going through, he has many wonderful things that have happened. The ascension of Jesus. He deals with the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And then he's got an interesting thing that takes place with a man named Stephen. Stephen was somebody who was called in order to fulfill a role when there was a dispute going on amongst widows in the church in Jerusalem. Some widows were getting overlooked for a daily distribution of food, and so there was a complaint about that. And the consensus was to call together some people who were full of faith in the Holy Spirit in order to take this over and to see these duties through. In doing that, Stephen was one of them that was chosen. In fact, when you go through the people who were chosen in order to oversee this responsibility, and some believe this is the calling of the first deacons in Scripture, you actually find out that they almost kind of pause for his name and give some extra credence about just the type of quality of person he was. There was something really special about Stephen. Well, he ends up getting into a situation where he's debating with some Jews that happened to be connected to the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, the ruling council at that time. And he gives them a rundown of their history. Now that's helpful. If you're not readily familiar with the Old Testament, you can kind of see some of the high points of what happens there. But he brings up a couple of really good instances. Number one, God spoke through Joseph in a very interesting way. A lot of bad things happened in Joseph's life, but he was used by God in order to save many, many people. Also Moses. Moses was destined for death. By Pharaoh. In fact, you were supposed to take all the boys, the little boys that were born, and throw them in the Nile and be done with them. And if you remember, and you've probably seen the Charlton Heston version of this, uh, but laying him in a basket and moving it on down the Nile, he came across Pharaoh's daughter. She took him as his own and ended up raising him. And even though out of disgust for what was happening to his fellow Jewish countrymen, he killed an Egyptian. When it was found out, he fled. So there, 40 years of his life was in Egypt, 40 years of his life was in the wilderness, and all of a sudden God calls him to go back and deliver the people. And it's, what's very interesting about Stephen's recounting of this to them is, number one, he's not giving them any new information. I imagine some of them were sitting there going, kind of like you are right now, we know this. We've already got this down. But he brings up something incredibly interesting. You've always been stiff-necked. Your fathers were stiff-necked. They're the ones who killed and buried the prophets and you worship their monuments. You've always been resistant of the Holy Spirit. Now that's not a way to win friends and influence people. And what pours out of that is a stoning, which is the terrible incident of actually taking up rocks in your hands and either throwing them at somebody, pelting them with them, are beating down upon them as a hammer until they're over, until they die. It's a sad occasion. What's incredible is the grace that pours out of Stephen in this, but what I want to draw your attention to is how Luke decides to introduce Paul, then known as Saul, to us. The Holy Spirit knew one day we were going to be reading this. And this might be 
first time for you. Maybe this is the hundredth time for you of what you've seen this. But it's very startling how he comes upon the scene. So notice what it says here. We're going to start in chapter 7, verse 58. When they had driven him, that's Stephen, out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Imagine the scene. Anger in the air. Probably the smell of blood is already starting to hit the nostrils, the senses. It is full of anger. It is hatred like few of us have ever experienced or know. And death is the only solution. That's where these men are. We've got to shut him up. And the only way to shut him up, speaking about how hard-hearted we are to the Holy Spirit, is to kill him. What severe measures. Verse 60, then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice. And this is incredible how he emulates the Lord Jesus when he was on the cross. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. I'm sure we immediately flash to maybe a picture in our mind of the cross and what it looked like for Jesus to look down upon all the people who were spitting upon him, throwing things, gambling for his clothes, hurling insults. Who knows what all was going on in the midst of that crowd of what he saw from above them looking down. And he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I tell you what this does. This testifies to the frailty of pagan thinking when it comes encountered with the truth. The Word of God making someone so hostile that they've got to vanquish it in a moment. I'll tell you what else it does. It exemplifies something that we see often throughout the Scriptures called dying grace which is in the moment of suffering and knowing that life is going to be coming to an end, being able to look upon your enemies or those who have spoken against you or been against you or have hated you or insulted you or whatever it might be in that moment and say, you know what, if for no other reason that they're created in the image and likeness of God, I hold no grudge. What an incredible unfolding. Chapter 8 shouldn't stumble us by the number there. The narrative picks right up and moves us in. Notice how it hits at him. Saul was in hearty agreement. In other words, he was consenting to this. He was joining in. He said, yes, this was completely right. And his conscience was not conflicted. Now, either. It was dulled to the idea of murder, but I think what we're going to see is there's something else that was going on here. Give it a chance for it all to unfold. It says, and on that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. That was the only place where there were Christians at this time. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea. That's the southern area. So uh, if we were dealing with Madison, or forgive me, Uh, Portage being like a type of Jerusalem, then Columbia County might be the larger outlaying area that we might consider our Judea a little bit larger expanse. But knowing that there's a city Jerusalem and then Judea around, if you've got maps in the back of your Bible, you'll see it. If you don't have maps in the back of your Bible, get a new Bible, okay? That's the best way to look at it. Um, But from there, notice they went up to Samaria, which was a very interesting situation because they did not like Samaria. If you remember, Samaria was made up of people who were Gentile and Jewish, uh, a mixture of people, called them half-breeds or whatever other uh, pejorative term you could think to put on them at that time. But they actually fled that direction because of the persecution. All of a sudden, those types of boundaries didn't matter anymore when life was on the line and they saw what happened to Stephen. Only the apostles stay behind. Look at verse 3. But Saul, we quickly flash back to him, began ravaging the church. Now notice that it's called the church. Everybody see that? But what does that look like? 
entering house after house. Now, whether that was the house of known Christians at that time, whether it was that the Christians were having their worship gathering time in-house to house, we don't know which one it was. But can you imagine, knowing what had happened to Stephen and, and it spreading across the news wire and getting that at your door? And notice what he brings up about this, what Luke wants to say. He was dragging off men and women. You know what that says? Saul didn't care. What he cared about, Christian or not, follower of Christ or not, believer or not, because this has become a threat to the true God of Israel, Yahweh. Now think about how close and yet so far away a mindset like that is. You can't deal with this Jesus. He's obviously an imposter. He says here, dragging off men and women, he would put them in prison. He would make sure that incarceration was the destiny for them. All of a sudden, when we pick up with Saul, it's a completely different picture than what we read about Paul, right? This is the guy who wrote 1 Corinthians 13, right? Love is patient, love is kind. Right? You're like, well, I hope Paul's that way too. You know? Saul wasn't patient. Saul wasn't kind. Saul was not long-suffering. Saul was not willing to bear one another's burdens. In fact, if we understand anything about Saul, we find out he's a zealot. Now, what's interesting about this is this dispersion of the church from persecution was a good thing. It may not seem like it. Horrible things were taking place. But here's what you found. Is that from chapters, chapter 8, verse 4, pretty much until the end of the chapter, you have thrust to the forefront someone named Philip, and he's described as an evangelist. And he goes everywhere that the Spirit of God leads him, and he is sharing the gospel to every person that will hear. And you have numerous people who are believing and being saved. Anytime that there has been a persecution or a crushing of God's church, there has always been a flourishing, incredible move of the Spirit that has blossomed out of it. If you ever want to look at some of the things that have gone on with Fox's Book of Martyrs, that tends to be a pretty popular text as far as persecuted Christians are concerned. Or if you want to look into anything that has to do with the underground church in China, you find out there's a lot of believers who are in communist China right now. And any time that they are faced with persecution, they are jailed, whatever it might be, there are incredible moves of the Spirit, incredible things of witness that end up blossoming out of that. But what I do want you to do is go ahead and go to chapter 9. We're going to look at verse 1. And then I'm going to ask something slightly daring of you to try to keep facts together. If you happen to have pieces of paper, some of you have these things, these little strings, these ribbons. You got ribbons if you could take one. And we want to put one. Acts chapter 9, verse 1, and then I'm going to ask you, I know I'm asking a lot this morning, okay? But then I'm going to ask you to turn over to Acts 22, verse 1, and maybe put a marker there. Maybe you just need to write it down. We'll go as we refer to it and take a look. And also Acts 26, verse 1. And here's the reason why I'm asking you to do this. Acts 9. Acts 22, Acts 26. The reason why I'm asking you to mark those places as we read through is because the first thing that we're going to see in Acts chapter 9 are events as they took place chronologically in real time. Uh, somebody might say, this is how it went down. Okay? And this is Luke's accounting in real time of Paul, Saul, when he comes face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ. And what was this like? The interesting thing about chapter 22 is chapter 22 is Paul's defense against Jews who have been riled up because the accusation is being spread around that Paul is actually telling people, you don't have to keep the law anymore. You don't have to mess with that stuff anymore. And he's telling them not to be law keepers, and he's speaking against God's word. Well, Judaizers take that very personally. And so a riot was getting ready to break out, and he requested that he get up in front of everybody and he speak to the crowds. And you can actually see, I think it's uh, the, the Tower of Antonia or something like that. There's actually, the place is still there. 
uh, in in, uh, Jerusalem to this day where he was standing on the stairs and he was speaking off the edge to all of these people who were crammed in there. And and right before that, they were beating him before some Roman guards came in and, and got him out of this situation. But he wanted to speak to the crowd. And he's going to recount the Acts 9 situation with a little bit more detail that we need to take a look at. And then in Acts 26, he's actually standing before royalty. He's got King Agrippa. He's a prisoner of Rome. He's in the presence of Festus. Festus has King Agrippa and his wife Bernice come to visit. He says, hey, I got this really unusual case here. I want to share it with you. I want to bring this guy out and you listen to him for yourself. And so there's going to be another recounting of this situation where he's going to give us additional details. Is everybody ready for a ride? Okay, great. So here we go. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Now Saul, watch this, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest. Now here's what this gives us an insight on. Number one, his anger is unabated. He is still about tracking these people down and making them pay the full price for their personal convictions. If there were ever a religious terrorist to be concerned about in the first century, it was Saul. He was so sold out to Judaism. In fact, indulge me for just one second. Dave, if you wouldn't mind, bring up Philippians 3. And look at this little passage. If you want to ring it down, bring, uh, write it down here. Something that he, he brings up to the Philippians when he's writing. Notice what he says. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Why? Why would your flesh be so? Now, what he's talking about is, is Christlessness, who he was without Christ. He was circumcised the eighth day, according to the law, of the nation of Israel, okay? Of the tribe of Benjamin, okay, so he's got his nationality established, what tribe he belongs to, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. There was nobody more Hebrew than me, is what he's saying. I was the Hebrewist, if that makes sense. But there was nobody more sold out to the cause of being a Jew and all that it represented for the proud nature that we should have because we alone are God's people on the face of the earth. Notice it says, as to the law... A Pharisee. I kept it completely. I was strict about this. I was upholding it to the hilt. But notice what he also says. Let's move on here. As to zeal, where we get the word zealot from, right? A persecutor of the church. If you want to know how serious I was about my Judaism, I went against people who disagreed with me. Anybody know what that's called today? Politician. All right, moving on. As to the righteousness which is in the law, as far as what it looked like to keep. Now remember, it's not just Ten Commandments, guys. It's 613 commands in the law of God in the Old Testament. He was found what? You know what that means? It means like holding up a white garment, you know? Ladies, your husband's been outside mowing the yard. You come in, and that shirt could stand on its own, right? But instead, when you pick it up and you hold up the armpit areas of it, as white as could be, you can't find any blight. There's no charge against Saul. Nobody could ever come to Saul and say, you broke the law. Now, type A probably, incredibly disciplined, incredibly methodical, serious, not letting anything stand in his way of being the perfect legalist in spades. So when he comes in, breathing threats, back to chapter 9, verse 1, and murders against the church, And when it says here that against the disciples of the Lord, he went to the high priest, he's got to get some authority. Now think about how smart this is on his part. I'm doing a pretty good job here in knocking these people out. I could do more if I had more. So let's make it 
legal. That's where everybody goes on a situation like this. Religious legality. The high priest, if he can just sign off saying, you know what, Paul has our blessing to go do this. Boy, think about what I could do. Now watch what happens here. He says here, and he asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus. Why? Because that's where the Christians would have fled to. I'll start there, and I'll talk to my brothers in Judaism, and I'll find out where these Christians have come from, and then we'll track them down. Notice, so that if he found any belonging to the way. Now, you have to be careful with that nowadays, because there's been actually a cult that's come out of this called the way, and I think it kind of died out in the 70s. But back then, they didn't know what to call it. In fact, they weren't called Christians until the church in Antioch in Acts chapter 13. At this point, they're just known as the way. Now, that seems kind of good, right? Because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Everybody with me? Okay, so notice, belonging to the way, both men and women, again, he doesn't care. He might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Put them on trial, send them to prison. I don't care. Well, the problem is, is that they believed wrong. Does this sit well with anybody? As Christians, we're like, well, no. But I mean, just think about it in a general societal construct. Good grief. How about this? Turn with me to Acts 22. Let's pick up a little bit more about this situation of pre-Jesus Saul. When Saul comes into this situation again, a riot was breaking out. People were violent, mad. And he believed that by speaking to them, he was going to be able to calm things down. If you read beyond what we see, that's fine. We're going to cover the B section of this that we're not going to hit next week, Lord willing. But it says here, verse 20, chapter 22, verse 1, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense, which I now offer to you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect. Now your marginal note says that's Aramaic. So it's a similar form of Hebrew at that time. In other words, he holds off on the common day Greek language. And because he's dealing with upset Jews, he knows one way to get their attention is start speaking a derivative of Hebrew to them. They perk up real quick. Notice it says when he started speaking to them in the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew. Sound familiar to Philippians 3? Yes, notice here you have his nationality, his ethnicity. The first thing you know, need to know is, guys, I'm a Jew just like you. You're a Jew, I'm a Jew, common ground. Look what he says after this. Born in Tarsus of Cilicia. You say, so what? Why does that matter? This is where maps come in handy. If you wouldn't mind, Dave, could you bring up our first map? When we look at this map here, I know it's kind of hard to see. Down here, at this very bottom point, that is the Sea of Galilee down there, okay? Uh, if you go up this direction, through this area known as Syria, and you cross over, here is Tarsus of Cilicia right here. Could you zoom in some for us, Dave? Whoa! There we go, right there. Everybody see it? Moving up this direction, Antioch, Acts 13, that's the church that Paul and Barnabas actually went to minister to and became members of there and were sent out for their missionary journeys. But right here is where he was born. Now here's what's interesting. If Galilee and all that's down here, and that's the northern province of what you're talking about, Jews and Israel and that type of thing, it means that he wasn't necessarily born, even though he was a Jew, he wasn't born on Jewish land. Does that make sense? Or Jewish property as it was at that time. He was born here. Now, you'll find out later that works to his advantage. Why? Because all that was dominated by Rome, which if his dad was a Roman citizen, not that he was a Roman, he was a Jew, but if his dad was a Roman citizen and he had Paul there in this area here, he now has double rights, dual citizenship. He has the rights of a Roman, and he also has the heritage, ethnicity, and upbringing of Jewish culture. Can't you imagine why God might want somebody like that for New Testament times? It'd be very advantageous. But not only that, let's go back to our text. In chapter 22, verse 3, he says here, Tarsus of Cilicia, that's where he was born, but he was brought up. Everybody see that word brought up? It's a figure of where you get the word nurtured from. How he was nourished when he grew. 
he was nourished in this city. Anybody want to guess what city they're talking about? Jerusalem. Even though he was born as a Roman citizen outside of the area, he had spent enough time growing up through his years to be nourished in the Jewish culture. So he's completely familiar and was probably part and parcel with everything that was going on in Jerusalem. In fact, we're going to see that that's what happened. But notice the next one here. He was educated under Gamaliel. You say, so what? Let me tell you about who Gamaliel is at this time. He was considered the most influential teacher of the day. In fact, he was one of only seven people in Jewish history who has ever been given this designation known as Rabban. Okay, most of the time we read through the scriptures and we see something like Rabbi. Okay, Rabbi was just a very common, you're a teacher guy, and we're okay with that. Rabban, R A B B A N, was a designation that was given to mean my master. The only designation that they had for Jews that was greater than that was Rabboni, which we just like saying because it sounds like Zamboni, right? But Rabboni, if you remember whenever Mary comes across Jesus after the resurrection and she thinks he's the gardener and he says her name, Mary, she turns around and says, oh my gosh, it's Jesus. No, she doesn't say that. She says Rabboni. And it's the highest form of respect that you could have for a teacher that was, okay? He was so elegant in the way that he handled the law. He was known for his piety and his learning. He was considered the most influential Pharisee of his time. He was part of a gracious school of teaching in Judaism known as the Hillel School. Some of you might be a little bit more familiar with that, but it was incredibly orthodox. It was very thorough. What's interesting is, is he used to be called, his name, they used to call him the beauty of the law. And they would say when Gamaliel died, the glory of the law and all ethics died with him. That's how influential he was. Now what's interesting about this idea of being educated by Gamaliel is that at five years old, Saul would have been taught the law by this man. Visiting with him regularly, if not camping out and staying there. Then at age 10, he would have been trained on how to be a Pharisee. Then at age 13, he was taught method of how you go about teaching the law to other people. So it was an incredibly regimented education. Here's what he's saying. I've had an incredible upbringing. I'm one of you guys, and I'm also a citizen of Rome. But please don't discount the Judaistic nature of who I am underneath for a moment. Now it moves forward. Notice it says, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. If you want to write down perfect legalists next to that, you can, because that's what he's describing himself as being. Notice it says here, I persecuted, here it is again, this way to the death. What does that tell you about Paul? He killed people. He had no problem murdering Christians. Sometimes we don't see it forthright. We're going to see it again here in 26. He had no problem murdering Christians. Notice after that, binding and putting both men and women into prisons. There it is again. Verse 5, and also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify. From them I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. Now, Does everybody see where he says in verse 5, the high priest and the council of elders can testify? Remember, at this point in Acts 22, he's a Christian, yes? He was Saul before in Acts 9. He's Paul now in Acts 22. What he's saying is, is these guys who are my enemies, whoa, sorry, that's for later. These guys who are my enemies, are actually those who can turn around and truthfully testify in a court of law to tell you what my prior situation was like. It's always interesting that Paul could use his enemies in his favor in that way. We're going to see that again. Now with that in mind, turn with me to 26. Because here we have another recounting of this. 26, starting in verse 1. Love the sound of pages. Agrippa said to Paul, You are permitted to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his defense. In regard to all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I am about to make my defense before you today. 
especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Does everybody see how respectful Paul is when he's in this situation? Notice he's like, man, the food here is terrible. You guys should be treating me better. He doesn't do that. He is incredibly respectful. This makes you think about 1 Peter 3.15. Set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts and be ready at all times to give a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. This is a model of it right here. He says here in verse 4, So then all the Jews know my manner of life, look at this, from my youth up, which are from the beginning, was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem since they have known about me for a long time, if they're willing to testify, notice how he's using his enemies again to talk about they've known me since I was a kid. He says here, that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. And now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. The promise to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O King, I am being accused by Jews. And then he brings up a really interesting question. And I kind of wish, if you notice the word people in this verse is in the italics, I kind of wish they wouldn't have added that there. Because it almost sounds like, what's wrong with you people? It sounds something like that. And uh, don't read it that way, okay? Notice it says, why is it considered incredible among you if God does raise the dead? Is anything too hard for the Lord? No, it's not. So it should be incredible to think the idea that he can give life to a dead body. But look what happens here. Verse 10. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prison, watch this, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. In other words, Stephen wasn't the only one. Can you imagine, Paul? How do you vote? Death. Going to the ballot box and hitting the button. We've got electronic ones now. We don't have to worry about hanging chads anymore. That kind of stuff. I'm going to take my vote and I give affirmative that this life should end. Why? Because they believe in Jesus Christ. Done. Pretty serious. Notice he moves on here. Verse 11. And as I punish them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. We don't know what that was. We don't know if that was means of torture. We don't know if that was just simply agitation and being belligerent. We don't know if he was yelling at them saying, where is your God now that you believe in? How come he won't save you from this? That's a lot of the mocking of which Jesus received, yes. Tell us, king, who struck you? You can almost hear it echoing for what happened to Christ in this situation. Paul was just getting them, please speak against this name Jesus. I just want to see you do it. That'll show how frivolous this faith is that you have, how terrible this way is. I try to get him to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. In that Damascus, of which you got letters for? Let me give you an application for this. This is bad, isn't it? It's interesting because Luke's nice on us. He's easy on us. Hey, here's something that's wrong here. And if you go a little bit further, you find out that it was actually this much that was wrong. And then when you get into Acts 26, you actually find out that Paul Paul was super messed up. Right? There's just something that was driving him that was just full of hate and evil. We know how this ends. We're going to see it here in a minute. No one's too far gone for the Lord. Not one person. Not one person that we would ever take a look at across a restaurant. Not one person we would ever see on a street corner. Maybe we're just sitting at a light. And we might be tempted to think in a moment in our mind, there's no way. With what that person has written on their car, there's no way. With what that person's listening to, there's no way. I saw how they treated that person when they came out of their store. That's no way. Stop. With God, there's always a way. With Jesus, there's always a way. And we're dealing with the worst of the worst in this situation. Luke wants to paint this picture. He's taking the jeweler's cloth and he's laying it down so he can slap the diamond up there and you can see it for its full glory. That's intense. Not to mention the fact that Jesus has already died for every person. He tasted death for every person. He's the propitiation for our sins. Not our sins only, the sins of the entire world. 
Salvation isn't offered to every person, even horrible people. Yes, horrible people. Everybody know what happened 500 yards from here? Jeffrey Dahmer? And what were the reports coming out of the prison at the end, right before he got killed in there? He accepted Christ. And what did people do? No. Nope. Wasn't real. Do they realize what he's done? Guys, it's precisely what he's done that makes him the candidate for grace. It's like when we come to church and we're expecting perfect people to be filling the seats. No. I'm glad you can laugh at that, man. There are some times when you walk amongst a body of believers and it's as stiff as a board, and if somebody sneezes wrong, it's going to be on Facebook the next. Can you believe how they sneeze during church? Is that really where we are as a Christian culture? Sadly, yes, it is. Now, here's the amazing thing about this. Remember, Acts 9 is the first actual historical account. 22 and 26 are retellings. Notice that Paul does not hold back how bad it was. Everybody see that? He doesn't hold it back. Is it in the past? Yes. Did Jesus die for it? Yes. Are you that person anymore? No. You are not. But it's precisely the need of salvation that brought to the surface that rescued us out of the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. That is the grace of the gospel. Of course they don't deserve it. Look at Saul. He doesn't deserve it. Now maybe you've never killed anyone. Maybe you have. Guess what? It doesn't exempt you from the grace of God. See, that's what's amazing about grace. Grace goes beyond my boundaries. When I get to the point, you know, well, you're the preacher. You should have more understanding of grace than that. When people are acting like fools, I don't know what to think. Let's just be honest, and you don't either. But isn't that able what God can do? Reach through all that mire and all that muck and lay hold gently of a soul that has gone astray. That's what he does. That's his business. That's how he handles it. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. Now, let's do this. Let's go back to Acts 9. And we'll make a sprint. Acts 9. Start in verse 3. Here we go. As he was traveling, remember, he's got authority now. I got papers. I got papers. You cannot stand in my way. I'm, I'm, I'm serving you papers. You have to let me in. As he was traveling, it happened that when approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days, three days, three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Does everybody see the incredible contrast between breathing threats and murders? and needing to be led by the hand because you can't see and you won't eat and you won't drink. The Lord Jesus just humbled a proud man. And it didn't take much. It just took Jesus being Jesus to do it. Now let's go to 22. Where we left off there was verse 5, so we'll pick up in verse 6. It begins the same scenario. Now Paul is a Christian looking back on the situation, telling hostile Jews about it, and here's what he says. Verse 6, But it happened that as I was on my way approaching Damascus about noontime, so we have a time here, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus the Nazarene whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me saw the light to be sure, did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. 
And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Go up, sorry, get up, and go on to Damascus, and there you will be told of all that he, sorry, that has been appointed for you to do. But since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. A little bit more information, same scenario. Turn to chapter 26. Look at verse 12. While so enraged as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Okay, pause. Out of everybody's name that I took record of, that we've incarcerated, whether man or woman, put on trial, voted for, and tried to get to blaspheme, there wasn't a Jesus who popped up in any of this. You think that was Saul's reasoning, Paul's reasoning at this moment? I don't think so. Notice that he calls him Lord. Who are you, Lord? Here's what's interesting. Have you ever been talked about because of your faith? You ever been persecuted for it? You ever had anything thrown at you for your faith? You ever been belittled for your faith, torn down? Family members reject you for that stuff? Here's what Jesus says when he says, why are you persecuting me? When someone persecutes the church, they're persecuting Christ. We are his body. He takes that very seriously. And if somebody wants to come against the message of the gospel, the truth that we try to live, the love that we try to show, the mercy that we want to extend, they've drugged Jesus into the picture as well. Why? Because he won't let you and I go somewhere without him. The indwelling Christ is who we take. So there is never a time when a good grief I'm going through this alone and nobody knows what I'm dealing with. No, Jesus is right there with you and he's suffering the brunt of it alongside you. He didn't leave. He didn't bail. He said, you know what, this just got too much. The cross was something, but this isn't, you know, I can't handle this. He didn't do that. Notice that he doesn't belittle it. Paul, any sin against my church is a sin against me directly. It's not that you an unnamed Christian person have a beef. It's that you and I need to have a talk. What else do we see? What an incredible phrase here that we don't have in the other two accounts. Look at verse 14. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Some of you are like, I don't even know what that means. And that's okay. I want to be able to tell you. I found a perfect description by a man named Alexander McLaren. He did a sermon called Christ's Remonstrance. Here's what he says. The metaphor is a very plain one. The ox goad was a formidable weapon some seven or eight feet in length, shod with an iron point, and capable of being used as a spear and of inflicting deadly wounds at a pinch. Held in the firm hand of a plowman, it presented a sharp point to the rebellious animal under the yoke. If the ox had readily yielded to the gentle prick given, not in anger, but for guidance, it had been well. But if it lashes out with its hooves against the point, what does it get but bleeding flanks? Paul had been striking out instead of obeying, and he had won by it only bloody hawks. It was an instrument that was used that whenever a yoke was put on two animals in order to pull a plow across a field, this younger animal who might not be so trained to it would be resistant 
of learning the direction and the mannerisms and everything that had to go on with this idea of being and growing up to be a successful ox to take that other one's place. And so there would be this pole with a metal end that would be there so that every time they would kick back against it like this, that it would meet that sharp point. And while there would be just a little bit of prodding in order to help move this way, obey this way, guide this way, you decided that you had an ox that was incredibly rebellious, they would only end up injuring themselves. In fact, he capped this off with this. Your own, li- your own limbs you may wound, but you won't do the goad much harm. See, here's something that Paul didn't realize. Jesus was after him. How do we know Jesus was after him? He watched the death of a man that refused to give up his faith. He was watching coats while they stoned a man. And all he heard were cries of forgiveness coming out of him. I don't know if you know this, but anytime you see a demonstration of forgiveness that takes place, it is a cry of God that is reaching out to you to try to minister in some way. And especially if you don't know Christ, it is definitely trying to reach you. Where else in this world is forgiveness found of such a perfect measure? We don't have a place. Sometimes the goad is necessary. Paul, it's impossible to fight. It's going to wear you out before it does me. The Lord Jesus will not give up in pursuing. That's what we need to understand about this. Let me ask you a question. Do you know someone who's currently kicking against the goads? If that's the case, write their name down and pray for them. Pray for them. Pray that they would submit easily instead of going the hard way. Pray that they would look at what the Lord wants and saying, God, i got nothing else. It's got to be you. It's got to be you. Maybe it is you. Maybe you're here right now and saying, you know what? I know what the Lord's been wanting me to do. I've been kicking against Him for years now. Maybe it's me. Here's the last thing I want you to see when we wrap up. I know we're going on time here. Acts 9 was an account. But 22 and 26 were something that we've missed for a long time in church. And that is called a testimony. It's a testimony of what God can do. Every single person in here, if you're a believer in Christ, you have a testimony. You have a jeweler's cloth of which he has placed a perfect diamond upon. All of us have something to which we can unfold for someone else to explain to them the futility of life beforehand and the blood of Jesus that washes white as snow on the other hand, every single person. How is your testimony? Do you have a testimony? Well, I don't have a testimony. Did you believe in the Lord Jesus? Yeah. Guess what you got? Uh, Holy Spirit. No, testimony. You do have that, but testimony, that's what we're going for. You have a testimony. Maybe you need to sit down with a piece of paper and write it out. Maybe some of you think more that way and you can do that. Maybe it's the fact that you just need to re- rehearse it in your head. Maybe it's a story that you're so familiar and so sensitive to that at a moment's notice you can just unfold it for somebody because it is the very propulsion of your life. The grace of God. The grace of God. Here's the thing. Use your past. Don't be ashamed of it. Didn't Christ die for our shame and guilt? Didn't He nail that? Isn't there always a sinner that's worse than us? Well, praise God for that one. Woo! Can you imagine Paul standing in front of a king going, I killed people. I made sure to kill them. That's who I was. You ever had somebody give you a testimony like that? Can you imagine next time we do communion, if I ask for testimony, stand up and say, I used to kill people. But we'd all be like, Where are the exits? What's in this grape juice, right? (laughs) But that is the depths of redemption of the gospel. Let me tell you this, because I deal with it in my own life. doesn't matter what you did. Jesus paid for it. doesn't matter where you were. Jesus brought you back. doesn't matter who you wronged. Jesus forgave it. As far as your sin is from the east to the west, 
to drown them in a sea of forgetfulness, never to be remembered anymore. That's not just Hobby Lobby wall art. That is the Word of God speaking love to you and I. Saying, this is how much I love you. Have we shared that testimony with other people? I'll tell you this. Here's one thing I know for a fact. They need to hear it. They need to hear it. In fact, some people are probably wanting to hear it and just waiting for you to tell them. But they're too shy to speak up. They don't want to be too religious. Boy, do we not have a great calling. Do we not have a great Savior. Let's pray. Jesus, I just want to give you all the praise for helping me get through that message. God, we all have something to say. We all have a story that you have written for us. A way that you have pinned perfectly your intrusion into our life. And though it may have seemed so unwelcome at the time, we wouldn't have it any other way now. For many of us, those were very frail moments. And we weren't for sure how life was going to change. But I'm thankful, God, that you have given promise after promise after promise. Lord, we may have somebody in our life that is kicking against the goads. And it's gone from annoyance to pain. Father, how you have richly desired to lead us in better ways. So Lord, I pray that we would bring these people before you in prayer. Asking God for your loving hand. to Take the blinders off their eyes so that they can see the gospel clearly. And Lord, if it's us in this room, Father, how we need your comforting love to lead us in a better direction. Thank you for being God. Thank you for being able to do the unthinkable, the unspeakable, to reach the unreachable. That's your business. That's what you do. And we praise you for that.